0: Father thank you that your promises stand You are unchanging, you are unfailing And what you say you'll do, you do That's the nature of you, to be true to your word And I thank you for it God I thank you that we can trust you um, That we hearing from you through your scriptures um, is not easy It doesn't always come obviously to us But that if we open ourselves in faith, as I ask you to do for us now, that we might hear what you're saying to us as individuals, as a body, and into the whole world. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, um, it was really interesting what Savannah said uh, about wrestling with some of what's in the Old Testament. Because over the last few weeks, I've had a few people ask me those sorts of questions. Some of them, specific questions maybe about a, a passage that's puzzling to them, like, what, what does this mean, and how, how do we make sense of this? But some of them, bigger questions, you know, things that, about, like, why does God do some of the things he does? Um, one of the big ones that comes up, broadly speaking, is, what do we make of God's judgment? How do we understand judgment? the judgment of God. And this is relevant today because in our series in Genesis, we have come to the story of Noah. Today is part one of that story. Next week will be part two, I'm going to do it in two parts, partly because it's a big story and there's lots to cover, Um, but also because I've sort of come to, in in my reading of the the story, uh, I've come to feel that I don't need to focus so much on, let's say, the, the Sunday school kind of kids' church part of it, the, the actual boat and the animals in the water. That's there, that's at the heart of the story, and it's, it matters, but what I want to think about with you out loud is what led into that event of the Flood. Why did that happen? Why, and how do we make sense of God, who we sing about and declare to be good and loving, and that, how do we deal with the tension that that creates in us when we look at the, the story that talks about the flooding of the whole world? And then next week, I guess my emphasis is going to be how do we move out of that flood story? So what is, what is God's uh, vision and purpose and heart going forward? Because this question of judgment is something that we, a lot of us carry. I've definitely wrestled with it a lot in my inner life, trying to make sense of it, understand it, understand what it says about the nature of God. And I know a lot of other people do too. is God just angry? And why does this seem to be different from the in some ways from the old to the new testament? Why is it that we have these stories in the old testament of acts of judgment and yet Jesus comes and declares love your enemies? I hope that doesn't open a question for you that you didn't previously have and I hope I haven't thrown you into a whole heap of confusion here but my guess is that most people already have a sense of that tension and so it's important that we're able to ask the question it's important that we're able to talk about it and and try and figure it out together and so if you want to talk about it like these other people have been please come and talk to me ask some questions challenge me on it Um, I think that's a big part of discipleship, is wrestling through these things. So come and talk. Now, I'm not going to be able to resolve all of your tensions today. Um, But what I am going to try and do is show from Noah's story that there are some principles involved that make sense of God's judgment. And maybe a helpful image might be That as we're in the process of learning about God and growing in him, we're having our sort of imaginations kind of continually refreshed and baptized almost by scripture. By the whole of scripture, by seeking to understand this one particular thing that's quite puzzling, by bringing into mind the whole story of God. Now, this has already been a long introduction, but one more thing I'll say is that in our series this year, we're looking at the book of Genesis, the book of Acts, and the last things, beginning, middle, and end. And towards the end of the year, we're going to be looking at the last judgment. Because one of the things that's taught in the New Testament is that one day, we will all stand before our Creator and give an account, and that is called judgment. So some of what I'm doing today is almost priming us together, priming you for that, uh, that part of the discussion later on. So, let's quickly recap where we've been. Last week we looked at Cain and Abel, and his jealousy Cain killed Abel, and so God put a curse on him. And it says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the image we get here is that Adam and Eve started in the garden in the the closeness and the intimacy of God's presence. And their sin found them expelled from the garden, so they were outside the garden walls. And then now Cain, their, their child Cain, kills his brother And he is driven even further east. So the story is that what started for humanity as this close and intimate joining together with God has become an increasing distance, an increasing separation from God because of sin. And the rest of chapter 4, which we didn't touch on last week, sort of unpacks some of Cain's lineage, um, his... uh, Cain starts the first city and tells the story of Lamech or lamech i 'm not sure how to say it, uh, who has two wives and then we see an even even more this man and the woman were meant to be one for each other, but then this one guy takes, decides to have two wives and then chapter five, which we 're kind of skipping over today, um, lays out a thousand years of history in Uh, a very short amount of time with a genealogy from Adam through Seth, through Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, different Enoch, and Methuselah, he's the oldest guy in the Old Testament in the Bible, Lamech, a different one, and finally we get to Noah. So the Bible, the the Genesis story, is tracing, uh, it's sort of, I guess like the montage in a movie, you know, like the the hero has to go and train up real fast and you just see snippets of the life. Well, this is like a montage almost of from Cain to Noah. And he has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And I've met someone named Shem and someone named Japheth, but I've not yet met a Ham. I'm looking forward to the day that I do get all three, right? Well, that brings us to the beginning of chapter 6. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from chapter 6. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. This is a puzzling little thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and I'm just going to leave that question with you um, because it's not the point of my sermon today. But some people would say that this is essentially angels or some kind of spiritual being breeding with humans. Then the Lord said in judgment, uh, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. Now, in that genealogy, it included the ages of all these different people, and they were living for hundreds of years. And here God says that there's going to be a cap. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. That's another puzzling thing, isn't it? Who are these Nephilim? What's that about? These were the the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. This, this is the thing that raises the big question, doesn't it? How could God flood the earth And kill almost every living creature. How could God, later in the story, command his people to go into the land of Canaan and wipe out everybody? How could God say that on the last day there will be judgment and some people will be lost forever? Previous generations of Christians accepted this far more easily, but it's a common thing that people stumble over now. One of the issues here is a cultural one um, and a historical one. In some ways, we have sort of at least since the Enlightenment come to be And consider ourselves sort of the arbiters of what's true and what's not true. Whereas previous generations took it sort of as read that God was the one who determined what was true and what was not true. Now that doesn't mean that there's no problem here or that we don't have a decent question to ask. But it is important to consider that when the Bible was written, it was written by people who assumed that because God was the creator, that God was the sustainer of all life, that God was above and beyond and before all things, uh, that it was actually his right to say what was right and what was wrong. There's a challenge in here for us to consider how we relate our own determinations about right and wrong to Scripture and to what God says. One of the challenges I think we have to meet is when we find stuff in Scripture that puzzles or disturbs us is not to lay aside or... uh, not to dismiss what we think and what we feel, and not to turn our brains off. I'm not in favor of people not thinking. But we do need to come to the Scriptures with a degree of humility to say, whatever this means, if it's God's word, I'm willing to submit myself to it. Another thing I think that makes it more difficult in our day and age and in our time and place is that we live in a world that is incredibly comfortable. And I can well remember one of my teachers at Kerry talking to me about the book of Revelation and saying, Western Christians, Christians in, in comfortable kind of middle class places like New Zealand and America, they really struggle with this stuff, especially the judgment passages, because things are pretty cozy, relatively speaking. But the, he said the book of Revelation was precious to Burmese Christians who were under persecution, who were suffering, to people in parts of the world that were full of violence and full of danger and chaos, they didn't have the same questions that we do. I'm going to get to why I think that's relevant a little bit further on. So we have this story that things started well and they've descended into corruption And it comes to the point where God was sorry he'd made humankind, it grieved him, and his plan was, I'm going to blot out of the earth the human beings I've created. I've got six principles that I want to put to you this morning for uh, trying to come to terms with this sort of passage The first is that this doesn't contradict the fact that God loves the world uh, and his people. We can see in the scripture that is evidenced by the grieving of God's heart. The emotion that's attributed to God here and that leads him to judge is not spite It's not arbitrary anger. It's it's the grief that humanity had done to itself the worst possible. God is not just by nature this angry being sitting up there looking for someone to smite. God is... uh, Grieved by sin. Principle two. Some of these we're going to rattle through quickly and some of them are going to take longer. Principle two is that humans are held to a high standard because of the identity God's given them. When we go back a few weeks to the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2... Humanity is created in God's image. Genesis 5, the first verse there before the genealogy, sort of reminds us of that. It says Adam and Eve made in God's image. And after the story of the flood, we're going to have another reminder of that. That anyone who spills blood on, on him will uh, Sorry, I've gotten confused with Cain's thing. Uh, The point is made after the flood that because humans are made in God's image, that they shouldn't be killing each other. Now, what do I mean by humanity being high risk, high reward sort of thing? Being created in God's image has incredible potential. Humans, if we look around, are capable of amazing and incredible things, technologically, socially, relationally. My guess is the best and the worst of your life relates to people. For sure, sometimes it relates to a thing like a disease or a tragic earthquake or something like that. But the best things about our lives are the people that's in them, And the worst things about our lives are some of the people that's in them. Principle three God is not arbitrary or rash in his judgments, God is patient and righteous in his judgments. That God is righteous is kind of what I was getting at before. That uh um, actually let me go a different track with that thought. The fact that we are made in God's image means that we can understand some things about God from humanity, right? Jesus uses God as Father, as as part of teaching this, right? He says, if you're a good father, you know, you, you don't give your son a snake instead of um, wheat or bread, and you don't give your, your daughter a stone, and just as your father, you know, you earthly fathers who are basically evil, give good things to your children, how much more God our Father, Right? So we can sort of read some things into God from who we are, but there's a limit to that because God is not human. And I think one of the problems we have with a passage like this is we're imagining a human being up there who gets angry. And maybe we've known some angry people in our lives, and so our imaginations are sort of awash with The thought of judgment being some angry person who just lashes out. Well, that's not God. God is not rash. God is not uh, vindictive. But we can fall into the trap of making God too human when we come to these things. What God is, is patient. And so when we read this story and we think, how on earth could God flood the whole world? We need to keep in mind that montage of 1,000 years, from Cain through to Noah. Things were getting worse the whole way through. And this is a pattern throughout Scripture. God does not sort of just rashly attack people without warning or immediately. Um, When God issues a judgment, there's a time that has gone before which ties into principle number four, which is that God, through Scripture, when, when things are going bad, God consistently warns his people about where they're headed. Now, sometimes in Sunday school and and in like VeggieTales videos, uh, Noah is sort of seen, he's there, he's building the ark, and then there's also a story maybe that he's trying to convince people to like to turn. It's not actually in this part of the scripture. But there is a tradition that's built up that says Noah was involved in warning the people about what was to come. Like I said, it's not stated here in Genesis 6. By the time we get to Genesis 6, God has told Noah this is what's happening, you need to build the ark and get the animals on. Way we go. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter is referring to some of the heroes of the Old Testament and he says God saved Noah, a herald or a preacher of righteousness. So my belief is that prior to this story, As a righteous man, as someone who was living rightly before God while the whole world around him was going crazy, I think it's safe to assume that Noah was used by God prior to this time to warn people, to demonstrate that there was another way. Now there's a little bit of speculation there from me, okay? I'm going... um, a little bit beyond what the scripture strictly says is true, but it does, in 2 Peter, call him a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And in any case, this is the consistent pattern through scripture as well. If God issues a judgment, he prepares the way for that by sending prophets, by raising people up. He's not a trickster sort of hanging out going, Haha, I'm going to get them one day, and then all of a sudden, boom. Maybe the, the great example from the Old Testament is the book of Jonah. The prophet Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh, who were the, the evil city of the time. They were the, the seat of power in the Assyrian Empire. These were brutal people. And the, the city was not a good place, and the empire was not a good place. And God sent Noah, uh, sorry, Jonah, even to them. Nineveh was so bad that Jonah didn't even want them to repent. Jonah thought, "Oh, this would be awesome if." God just wiped out Nineveh. Nineveh are horrible. The last thing we want is them to turn around. But the story of Jonah teaches us that God's desire is always that people would turn around. Principle five. God preserves a remnant because his purpose was never to destroy, but to build and grow and construct. Noah and his family, Genesis 6 8, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And we've got to keep in mind that God is, again, not the God of destruction, but the God of life. God is the one who from Genesis 1 and 2 created and through all history sustains creation. And so God's purpose was not to destroy everything and turn it off, turn the lights out, go away, never come back. Purpose included the preservation of no owner's family to continue the world that he loves. Principle six. The last thing, the last of these principles that I want to talk about is to ask the question, really, How bad do you think human beings can get? I said before we have great potential to do amazing and awesome things. But we also, humans, have great potential to do incredible harm. So let's look at what God saw in humanity at the time of Noah. It says the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. The author is laying it on thick here, isn't he? Right? Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts everything that was going on in the th- in the minds of people at that time was only evil so without exception evil was in the hearts of people during that time and continually every thought only evil continually genesis 6 11 and 12 says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. I'm struck with that saying, filled with violence. Humanity at that point had gone so far into corruption that violence had reached its maximum. We look around the world today and we see a lot of violence, and it's horrific. And depending on your own personal response, maybe you think some sort of judgment is necessary or some sort of intervention. But there's also a great deal of good in the world today still. There's a lot to be redeemed. I think the story here is telling us that humanity at that point, with the exception of Noah and his family, could not be redeemed. There was no other option. This is the third week in a row now that I've brought up the example from the last century of Nazi Germany and and the the, um, communist um, regimes of China and Russia. Hundreds of millions of people killed because of evil ideology. And no one at the beginning of the 1900s, with the exception of a couple of very prescient minds, no one would have thought that was possible. And yet it happened. Humanity, because of who we are, because of the great power and the great potential that we have, can go really, really bad. Imagine what it would be if the whole world was like that. I don't want to get political about Ukraine and whatever you think about that particular situation. But so many of us are horrified by what's happening. What if that was everywhere? What we're led to believe here is that the earth was filled with violence. Violence. So my view is the idea of God judging the world should feel horrible. The moral disturbance that we feel is not unreasonable. But my feeling is we should take it as a warning about the seriousness of sin. Here we've got it in a big picture sense. We've got it that the whole world could become awful. The whole world could become filled with violence and, and everyone corrupted by sin. But there's a warning for us too as the individual. That if we celebrate or tolerate the sin in our own lives and ignore the warnings that God offers... And let that go on and on and on over time. It might destroy us. I believe and I preach and I try to live by in my relationships with others the truth that God is love, that God is full of grace, that God looks upon you no matter the condition of your life right now and smiles because he delights in you as a son or a daughter. And because that's the heart of what I believe, because that's really the the big thing I want people to get when they come to this church, I don't preach on judgment a whole lot because I think we can go too far into that and and preach to condemn people, preach to make people feel bad. And I hope I haven't made you feel bad today. But what we learn from the scriptures and the example of God's judgment, it's not that God's love comes to an end for us. It's that if we as humans get ourselves into a state where we Have gone so far in a certain direction, sometimes God does leave us to suffer the consequences of what we've done. Another way to read this story of the flood: it's not that God was outside looking in and saw it and thought it was awful, and so he sort of flooded it from outside. It's that God allowed the consequence of their own sin, the fullness of their violence, to consume them. I do want to challenge you this morning to take sin seriously in your life. Not because God's mad at you, not because he's itching to destroy you, not because he is not on your side. God is on your side. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he died for us and he took away the penalty of our sin. And he's poured out his Holy Spirit onto us to flood us, not to kill us, but to kill the old nature of sin and death. In one of Peter's epistles, I was going to talk about this next week, but I'm going to say it now. He talks about the flood of Noah as a type and a foreshadowing of the baptism that we go into by faith. Because at the end of Noah's story, God promises, I'm never going to flood the earth again. But what does happen is God brings Christ to redeem us and to save us. And gives us this thing called baptism where the old man, the old nature, the old person goes down into the waters and is drowned and is brought up again in resurrection life to new creation. In this story, everything was wiped out and a little bit was preserved. Noah and his family. But in our baptism, mystically, spiritually, sacramentally, we go down into the waters and everything is gone and we come up still ourselves but a new creation, something totally new. And the power of that is to enable us To no longer head in the direction that this passage talks about. We no longer have to be afraid of the consequence of our sin leading us further and further and further because we can be sure that God has sealed us, that God is working in us and preparing us by His Spirit. I'm going to pray. Father, your word is puzzling and there are things in it that are not easy to understand. But you are a good father. You love us greatly. You've called us. You've purchased us and you've empowered us by your spirit. You still do call us to holiness. You call us to live for you. And to take seriously the sin in our lives for your sake, but also for ours, that that does not take hold and does not um, drive us towards our own destruction. But God, I thank you and praise you that what you've done for us is far greater than the, the sin that we've done. That your son Jesus took our sin away so that we now stand before you in confidence and boldness. Your word declares to us, God, that if we have sin in our lives and we confess it to you, that you are faithful and righteous to cleanse us, faithful and just, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In the waters of our baptism, God, the the sinful nature that we were stuck in, that Noah was stuck in, that, that the people of his time were stuck in, that sinful nature has been put to death. And you have made us alive to Christ. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that you've empowered us and made it possible for us to live a new life through Jesus. I pray for each person here. Having heard a message that includes a lot about judgment, I pray that there would be zero condemnation in anyone's heart. For your word says that Jesus came not to condemn the world. And your word says, God, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, by your Holy Spirit, I pray you would do the miraculous work of giving us the confidence to believe that. To believe that we are not condemned. But also, God, in the power of the Spirit to live for you To pursue righteousness and holiness. To pursue a life that honors you. And God, make us to be people who, like Noah, were heralds, preachers of righteousness. Help us to be people who tell others about the good news of Jesus. That our acceptance before you is not based on what we've done or how we've failed, but it is in you. Thank you, God, for all of your good gifts to us. In Jesus' name, amen.